Well, it is my distinct honor to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning. Uh, Dr. J- uh, Jamie Dew is the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Level College. Jamie Dew is the, uh, was previously the vice president for undergraduate studies and distance learning at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He holds an MDiv and a... I'm sorry, is that supposed to be pronounced PhD? Is that how that works? Oh, okay. In Theological Studies from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as a PhD in Philosophy of Mind and Philosophy of Religion from the University of Birmingham in the UK. He is married to Tara, and they have two sets of twins. And whenever he's ready, I'll allow him to introduce them to you as well. Um, let's thank God and praise God for Dr. Jamie Dew. And let's pray for him as well as he stands to preach God's word. Father, we do thank you so much for such a gifted man. And Lord, we pray, Lord, uh, that more than that giftedness, Lord, uh, that he is also, Lord, uh, a man of integrity and humility. And Lord, Lord we, uh, we just thank you that you've brought him here, Lord. And we pray for him now, Lord, as he breaks the bread of life to us, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would anoint his speech, every word, every thought that comes to his mind now would be from you, from your heart, that we would have hearts that are open and ready to receive uh, the word that he preaches. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Uh, Let me just introduce my family very quickly. This is my wife, Tara. Wave your hand, Miss Tara. And then we have two sets of twins, as mentioned, Nathan and Natalie. They just hit 15 last week, and so we're worried about driving and all that stuff. Uh, And then we have the younger set, the Sams. We call them the Nats and the Sams. So we have the Nats, then the Sams, Samuel and Samantha. They just hit 12. So they're about three months apart on their birthdays. So yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. We refer to ourselves as the Do Crew. We actually referred to ourselves that way before we moved to New Orleans. And we moved to New Orleans and we realized that crews were like a real thing. So it's kind of taken on a whole second layer of meaning for us. But that's the Do Crew. They travel with me every chance that they get to come with us and be in wonderful churches like this. I have the good fortune of being in a mostly a different church almost every Sunday. And I'm grateful for that because I get to see great churches, uh, faithful pastors, good people, and it gives me a lot of hope and encouragement. But today's a special privilege just to be able to come here and, and Pastor Josh to see a couple baptisms. Praise God for that. That's a wonderful thing to be able to celebrate together today. Amen. And then 92 years. Wow. Y'all, I hope you realize that doesn't just happen. That's not a given. It's not just because a church exists that they're going to make it that far. I mean, most churches do not hit their 92nd birthday. So this is a major, major praise in the life of Myrtle Grove Baptist Church. And I'm honored to be here with you today to celebrate this occasion. Uh, As mentioned, I'm the president of a seminary, one of your seminaries. You have six seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention. And if you don't know what a seminary is, let me just say it this way. We train your pastors and your youth pastors and your worship leaders and missionaries and things like that. People to go out and to do all the work that you, the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, send us to train. That's what we do. And we're right around the corner in New 
New Orleans, and we love you folks, and we're grateful that we get to be here with you today. Thank you for your support through the cooperative program and all that you do for the work that we do collectively together. All right, I can keep going with things like that, Pastor Josh. It's an honor to meet you and uh, to be in your church and to have some time together with your people. I look forward to lunch with you. Uh, Let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start in verse number 12 together today, and we're going to read down through verse number 26. And this is a good passage of Scripture for homecoming because it's a passage of Scripture about the church and then specifically about you, the individual member of a church, your place in the church. And so since we're celebrating homecoming, this is just a perfect fit for the occasion. So let's read together. Here's what the Bible says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So there's a point that Paul wants to make there. I'll come back to it. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but many. May I just pause right here as we read the text this morning. In our day, when we want to emphasize something that we write, we underscore it, we highlight it, we boldface it, we italicize it. They didn't have those tools back then, so you know what they did to make sure you caught the emphasis? They repeat it again and again. Notice how many times already, we're just a couple verses into this, and we're going to see it a couple more times, how many times he's made this point, the body is one, And there are many members. He wants you to see this. So, for as the body does not consist in one member but many, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, do I not belong to the body? That would not make it less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. Verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor get the head. To the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think to be less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now listen to this, verse 25, that there should be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, listen to this, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. Father, bless us, we pray, as we have now read your word and we open it and we consider it. I pray that, God, you give me accuracy and precision with your word. I pray that, Lord, you'd use it to encourage your people and to make your people strong. I pray that, Lord, you'd use it to bless these precious souls. We love you. We give ourselves to you. We ask you to bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's my question for you this morning as we begin. What's your place? You, the person, you individually, what is your place and function 
in the body of Christ. In other words, what does God want you to contribute to this thing called the church? You see, I ask that question because for many churches that I would enter into, for many people that I would preach to in those churches, the dominant perspective in most people's lives is that church is the place that they go to on a Sunday morning and they attend. And then that's about it. They then leave that church service and they go about the rest of their business on a Sunday afternoon. They go about the normal rhythms and flows of their week on Monday through Saturday. And then again on Sunday morning, at the appropriate time and hour, they again attend and show up. Which means, in short, for most people, the dominant way that we think about our place in the church is that that is the place that I show up to participate in a worship service. And that's about it. I would call this approach the shower-upper approach. These people are just shower-uppers. They just show up for the church service, and that's just about it. Now, again, this is the dominant way that most people think about this. And I want to say to us this morning, if that's your perspective, if that's your approach to the question that I've asked you this morning of what's your place in the body of Christ, what is your responsibility and contribution to the body of Christ, then you are selling God short, you are selling his people short, and here it is, man, you're selling yourself short. Because God intends for you to have a much more vibrant a much more essential function in the church than just being a mere shower-upper. Now let me just say something to the shower-uppers, if I may, for just a second. We're glad you at least show up. We're not trying to negate that. We don't want you going backwards. The point here this morning is to say, stop doing that. No, the point is to say, you have to realize that you actually have a far greater contribution to make to this thing called the body of Christ than you are giving yourself to. Now, as we jump into the text, I want to show you three things, you know, because I'm a Baptist preacher. I'll show you three things. Paul only gives us three points. No, no, no. We actually have about the original sermon when I wrote this sermon has like seven points in it. So you see, I'm just giving you three of them this morning because I hear there's a lunch afterwards and I don't want to (laughs) distract us from that. So let me just hit three of the big ones here. There's a lot of things we could say about the body of Christ and your place in it from this passage, but I'm just going to hit the three big ones here this morning, okay? As I jump into those, though, let me make sure we're all on the same page about a few literary devices that Paul uses in the passage so we can really understand what he's doing. Because you may have, as I was reading that passage, or if you've ever read that passage before, you might have misunderstood. Like Paul is sitting there talking about, you know, Jews and Greeks and all these things. And all of a sudden he's talking about feet, hands, eyes, ears, and heads and bodies and things like that. And you might have been thinking, what? So what is Paul doing with all of that? Well, there's some literary devices. And I'm not an English major. I always like to jokingly point out that I slept through English just like everybody else when I was in high school, you know. But I do remember what literary devices are. So he uses two of them in this passage of Scripture. The first one's called a metaphor. There's a big, whopping metaphor in this passage. Okay, so let's understand what metaphors are, right? Metaphors are simply this. They're when we take something that we already understand and are familiar with, and we use that thing that we're, under, we're familiar with to better understand something else that we're not as familiar with. You got it? 
That's all a metaphor does. In this case, it's the body, the human body. Because you know what? You and I know an awful lot about human bodies. We've spent our whole life in existence in our human bodies. We know the the cracks and the crevices and the, the squeaky knees and all those types of things. We know a lot about the body. But now we want to understand about the church. So we know less about the church. Paul says the church is kind of like a human body. Okay, So number one, there's a metaphor between the body of the human and the body of Christ, the church. Okay, The second literary device that he's going to use in this text is called personification. Okay, You know what personification is? Uh, if you've ever seen Beauty and the Beast, for example, there's personification. The little cup takes on a personality and talks and thinks and has a perspective. That's called personification. In this case, feet, hands, eyes, ears, and noses are going to be personified. They're all of a sudden going to start talking to us and telling us how they feel and what they think about themselves. Make sense? All right, you got it. Let's jump into the text. What does Paul show us about our place in the body of Christ? Well, first of all, start with me in verse number 12 through verse number 13. The first thing I want you to see in the text this morning is the Apostle Paul shows us that every last one of us fit within the body of Christ. So in other words, what I want you to see here is that it really doesn't matter who you are. doesn't really matter where you've been. doesn't really matter what you've done. doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you might be. It doesn't matter if you're one of the elites of culture or one of the non-elites of culture. doesn't matter if you're white, black, Asian, Hispanic. doesn't matter any of the, those things. It does not matter. The typical things that have normally divided us as human beings in a society, all of a sudden in the body of Christ, those things go away and all of us come the exact same way and all of us fit in the body of Christ. You belong here. So listen to what he says, verse number 12. For just as the body is one, and remember how often, watch how he repeats this again and again and again. He wants you to see this. For as the body is one, there's only one body, and yet it has many members. He's simply saying, look, there's only one Jamie Dew's body, but Jamie Dew's body has hands and feet and eyes. There's one body, but many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. In other words, he's saying exactly like this physical organism, a human body, it's this way for the church. Verse 13, for in one spirit you were all baptized into one body. So in other words, look, here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you're a rich person or a poor person. You came to Christ and you became a child of God in the exact same way that I do and anybody else does. We do testimonies at NOBTS during chapel, and we, we video record them now. Because what we don't want to do is hand somebody a microphone and say, share your testimony, because then they go way too long. So we put them in a studio, and we say, hey, you got two and a half minutes. Share your testimony. And bam, guess what? When two and a half minutes is up, the camera's going off, right? So in two and a half minutes, just feature, how'd you come to faith in Christ? And we're doing that with our faculty so that our students can hear our story. You know what's really cool about hearing our faculty's testimony? Some people have testimonies like me, the drugs, the alcohol, the, the, the arrest. Yes, that's right. One of your presidents of one of your seminaries was one of those kinds of guys. That's me. Some people have testimonies like me. They got arrested a couple times. They did really bad, heinous things sometimes. And then you have testimonies like the other day of Tyler Whitman. 
He grew up in a church home. He grew up in a, as a pastor's kid. He can't remember a time in his life when he did not believe these things. He said of his testimony, it's a boring testimony. You know what? It doesn't matter if you've got a boring or a graphic testimony. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. When you came to Christ, you came exactly the way I did. Through the blood of Christ and the grace of God and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. That's how you come. Amen? So in Christ, there is no holier than thou. Because in Christ, all of us come as desperate sinners... We receive salvation through Jesus and the Spirit of God into our life, which does this thing called regeneration. What's that? It means that it takes something that's dead and makes it alive again. That's regeneration, right? Flesh may die off and then it will regenerate. New will grow in its place. We were dead in Christ. All of us, whether Jews or Greeks or whoever else... But when Christ came to us, we were made alive again. Watch how he says it. For they're baptized into one body. And note how he breaks it down now. Jews or Greeks. In this day and age, this was the equivalent of all the racial divisions that our country has been known for. In other words, those racial divisions, which typically divide us, those go away in the body of Christ. Whether slaves or free, this would have been the equivalent of rich people and poor people. A lot more drastic, of course, in those days. I'm not trying to minimize what happened there. But slaves are free. Here's what you need to see. Racial divisions and socioeconomic divisions, which would typically tear any other group of people apart in our country, those have gone away in the church. Which is to say, the hope for us, I mean, one application for our country is, is that, look, the church can be the model and the paradigm of how all this stuff comes together because we have someone that unites us. Here's the bigger takeaway of this point. The point in verse number 12 and verse number 13 is that every last one of us fit in the body of Christ. That's important because there are some of you who think because of what you've done, because of where you've been, because of a failure that you have had, you think of yourself as a second class kind of Christian, perhaps. Maybe I don't belong. Listen to not me. But the Bible, you all fit within the body of Christ. That's the first big point. Now, the second big point, number one, Paul shows us here that we all fit within the body of Christ. But remember my opening question to you, what's your role and function? Well, here's where he's going to answer that question. From verse number 14 down through really verse number 24, Paul is going to answer that second question of what's your function. And here's the second point I want you to see. And I want you to see that not only do you fit, number one, but that number two, all of us have an essential function to perform. Now, let's just make sure we understand that word essential. That word essential doesn't mean important. That word essential means we can't function the way we're supposed to function without you. So now what I want you to see is that what Paul shows us is that every last one of us has... An essential function. He, want, he has something for all of us to do. He does not envision us being mere shower-uppers. Just, you know, that's where I attend. And on Sunday morning, you wake up, you put on your best clothes, and you come in, and you sit, and you listen, and you go home, and you go about the rest of your business, and you're just a mere shower-upper. That's not what God envisions for us. 
We all have an essential function. Verse number 14 through verse number nine, through verse number 20, he's going to speak to one group of people. And then in verse number 21 through 24, he's going to speak to a different group of people. You see, we in the body of Christ tend to break into one of two groups. There are some of us who walk around feeling that maybe we don't have as much to contribute. I'm not as good at this thing as that person is. And then there's some people that think, man, I have a lot to contribute. So I'm going to break these in half because that's what Paul does here. And I'd put it to you this way. There's one group of people from verse number 14 through 20 that have what we would call an inferiority complex. And another group of people from verse number 21 through 24 who have what I would call a superiority complex. Paul's going to speak to both groups. And he's essentially going to say to both groups, no. So let's talk about the inferiority complex people. First of all, let's explain what we mean by that. What what is somebody with an inferiority complex? What does that mean? It means this, and it's right here in the text. I'll show it to you. People with an inferiority complex are paralyzed by what they're not. Right? Well, I didn't graduate high school. What do I have to give? I didn't go to college. I, I don't know how I could be used. I have this background. I, I don't know how I could be used. Right? I'm not as good at this thing over here as that person is. I can't sing like those people. I can't play an instrument. I, I don't preach. I don't teach. I mean, I just, I don't know, you know, really. I'll come. I'll be a mere shower upper, but I got nothing to give. Inferiority complex people. Again, these are people that are paralyzed by what they're not. Because they see everything that they're not, or not as good as some other person, they therefore subdue themselves into being a mere shower-upper, and they don't give to the body of Christ what they're supposed to be giving. And they themselves don't thrive as they're supposed to be thriving. Here it is, verse 14. For the body does not consist of many, but one... Now, verse 15, here it is. This is where personification is going to take place. The foot should, if the foot should say, again, feet don't talk, right? Unless they're, they're barking at you. <laughs> that typically means they're like hurting or they're stinking or something like that. But that's not what he's talking about here, okay? If the foot should say, it's personification. Let the foot share its perspective on how it feels about itself in relation to other parts in the body. This is what Paul's doing. If the foot should say, well, you know, shucks, because I'm not the hand... I do not really belong to the body. Here's what the foot is saying like this. This is what it means. The foot is saying, well, I'm not like the hand. And because I'm not like the hand, I'm not as valuable as the hand. And because I'm not as valuable as the hand, I'm just really not part of the body. I'm not important. You can amputate me and we'd be just fine. Now, why would the foot feel that way about the hand? I mean, that's not really explained to us in the text But I think we can use our speculative imagination for a second and understand why Paul would put it that way. Why would feet feel inferior to hands? Well, think about it. Feet are down there. Nobody really ever pays any attention to them. And they have a very basic rudimentary job, right? They walk. That's it. Nobody pays them any attention. Unless they're really goofy looking and weird or something, and then people pick on them. And that's it. 
So they never get positive attention, but they can get some negative attention. Hands, on the other hand, watch this. Hands do everything, man. We play video games with hands. We cook food with hands, right? We play musical instruments with hands. We high-five people and shake hands. Ladies paint their fingernails, and when they get engaged, a ring goes on their hand, and they show it off. I mean, hands are the center of attention, and they have all the skills, there's always that one person in the, in the group that's just good at everything. And we don't like that person. <laughs> we compare ourselves to that person, right? The hands are in the center. They got all kinds of skills and they get all kinds of attention, right? Feet, on the other hand, just have a basic function and nobody pays them any attention. You know what? There are people in the body of Christ like that too. Well, I'm not as good at this as that person is. And I have a basic function. I'll give you a real life tangible example of feet in the body of Christ. Who's your custodian in this church? Whoever it is, can I just say to you, you're doing a great job. But normally, amen, that's right. But let's be honest, normally nobody pays any attention to it, do they? And if they do pay attention to it, watch this. It's because there's a problem. Hey, this trash can, this trash hasn't been taken out. Hey, did you see how dirty that floor is? And like a bunch of chickens pecking another chicken whose neck is broken. And peck, 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 peck. We'll wear those suckers out. There's feet. And feet now feel this way. Well, man, I'm not really much. Let me ask you that question. You ever feel like you're not much? And it paralyzes us into being a mere shower-upper, right? If the feet, watch, here's the foot's perspective. The foot now says, well, I'm not the hand and therefore I don't really belong to the body. Watch how Paul mocks that idea. Would it not make it any less a part of the body? In other words, Paul's saying, really? You think just because you feel that way... You're not actually part of the body. Let me ask you a question about feet. Which would you rather lose? As central as hands are, and as rudimentary as feet are, which would you rather lose? I don't know about you. I think I'd rather lose a hand than a foot. Why? Because here's my point to you from the text. Because every one of us is essential. We can't do what we're supposed to do. We can't be who we're supposed to be unless all of us are contributing what God gave us to contribute. Can you imagine? Just catch this vision for a minute. Can you imagine how this community would be turned upside down if the whole body of Christ here at this church caught vision of I have something to give to the kingdom of God and gave it as an act of worship. But right now the foot says, you know, I'm not the hand. I don't really, you know, I'm not really part of the body. And Paul says, really? You, you, does that really make you less part of the body? No. Now watch, he's, the foot's not the only one. Verse 16. If the ear should say, well, I'm not the eye. I don't belong to the body. Would that make it less part of the body? Now why would the ear feel this way in comparison to the eye? Same exact thing. Nobody pays attention to ears. Unless they're really big and goofy looking. And then they get picked on, Right? Eyes, by contrast, we look into people's eyes when we have conversations. We are attracted to people because of their eyes. Ladies highlight their eyes with 
eyeshadow and mascara and eyeliner and things like this. Why? Because eyes are beautiful and they are seen and they get attention. Ears never get any attention unless it's bad. And that's just the way it is in the church. There's some of you that feel like you're not as good or you're not as valuable or you're not as important as somebody else in this church or some other group of people in this church because of what you're not. I'm not this and I'm not that. Can, can we just be honest? We're family, right? You're right. I, I don't have enough in me to move the needle for the kingdom. You know, a good little illustration, there's a good little paradigm for all of us to think about. As you wrestle with your own inadequacies, do not assume that the kingdom is up to your potential. Let me say that again. Do not assume that the kingdom is up to your potential. Because listen, if it did come down to our collective pooled talents and abilities to get the kingdom to come, we would fail. Because none of us, even collectively, are actually enough. And you know what? That's okay. It's actually a good thing, right? Because it's not up to you and it's not up to me. It's not about me and it's not about you. Here's the illustration I'd use for you. Remember in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has been walking thousands of people. It says 5,000 men. When you take women and children into consideration, you're looking at eight to 13,000 people that are following Jesus. And Jesus looks up and the disciples come and they say, Lord, it's lunchtime and they're hungry. What should we do? Should we send them all back now? They don't want to lose the crowd. So there's this crisis. I guess we're going to have to send them home, but we don't want them to go home. We don't have a way to feed them. And, and Jesus looks at them and says, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and they're like, uh, here's a moment of inadequacy. Here's a huge moment of inadequacy. Uh, uh, none of us have anything, Lord. Um, this kid's got two fish and five barley loaves. Let me, let me translate that to you. Fish would have been about the size of sardines. And the barley loaves would have been about the size of hot dog buns. Against 13,000 people, we got two sardines and five hot dog buns, Lord. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever feel like two sardines and five hot dog buns? What'd they do though? This is not about your power and my power and my ability. It is about our obedience. And then ultimately, it is about God honoring that obedience and sending his spirit, letting it fall and watching him work. What happened next in that story of the feeding of the 5,000? They, watch this, they gave what they had and he himself blessed it and with his blessing, that which was in its own right totally insufficient became more than enough. Right? Man, I got to tell you, there is not... People say, do you still get nervous preaching? Let me tell you what I don't get nervous about anymore. I don't get nervous doing public speaking anymore. I was just used to it. I used to. No, don't get me wrong. It's just at this point, after you know, like 10,000 times over the last 27 years, I, the public speaking part doesn't freak me out anymore. Preaching? Yeah, still does. Still get that little knot in my stomach. Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can do this. 
Let me tell you what I've found. Let me tell you what I've discovered. It's kind of like that feeding of the 5,000 I just talked about. There's an amazing thing that happens when I simply take a step of obedience. Lord, I, I don't know that I can do this again. I think that literally every single time. I don't know I can do it, but you know what? I know you've called me to do it, so here we go. And I take that step, and what I find is when I'm obedient like that and take that step, He will meet me right here. Right? Hey, feet. Hey, ears. No. Stop thinking about this the way that you are. Stop living in this paralyzed comparison. Only seeing what you're not. Understand that God simply wants you to give what you have to give as an act of worship. And that when you do that, He Himself will honor and meet it and use it beyond what you can imagine. There's some of you that have an inferiority complex and God's wanting to shake you from that and say, stop. Offer to him that which you have to offer. That is worship. Now, there's another group, verse 21 through 24. These people have the opposite problem. The inferiority people, they think they're paralyzed by what what they're not. The superiority complex people are proud of what they are and confident in what they are. And they too, oddly enough, misunderstand how God's power comes down, how it is that God moves. Both of these groups, the inferiority complex people and the superiority complex people, both of them think that it's up to us. And that's the common mistake in both of these groups. The superiority complex people are basically your people in your church that think, you know what, if I left, you know they like to threaten the pastor with that from time to time. Right? Well, Pastor, I'll just leave. I guess they think that the kingdom of God depends on their tithe. Or their talent. Or their whatever. Or their heritage. You know, here's, let me draw again from John chapter 6. There's this moment Jesus has just fed all these people. Thousands of people are enamored by him. And then you know what he did? He turned and he looked at them and he said, You know what? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And it shocked everybody. And the Bible says from this point forward, many, that is thousands, turned around and followed him no more. And the very next thing that G, the Bible says is that Jesus got up and says, Wait, guys, come back, come back. No. He let them walk. You want to take your bat and go home? Because it's not your way? Look, the kingdom is coming with or without you. Right? The, these people think it's all about them. Look at how Paul describes it. The eye, therefore, can't say to the hand, Off with you, I have no need of you. Nor get the head, because again, heads get all the attention. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. There are some people in the body of Christ that think that they're the cornerstone that keeps it all together. And without them, this isn't going to happen. And everybody else can just leave. And Paul is saying, no. Now, if you're one of these people, can I just clarify Here too, my point is not to you today to say, now you need to leave and go on. No! My point is not to say you need to stop serving. No! Because you too are in fact essential. The point is to say the whole body is essential. You are needed, Mr. or Mrs. Superiority Complex. But we need to have a change of heart. Right? This is not... 
your church. It's his church. Right? I learned this lesson as a 24-year-old preacher. I'll tell this real quick. I was first church I ever pastor. I was 23 years old. They, uh, they asked me to come fill the pulpit. And so I said, okay, sure. They said, well, would you meet with our search committee? I thought, that's odd. But okay, sure, I'll come meet with you. Well, it was a bait and switch type of thing. I'd agreed to fill the pulpit. And then I walked into, hey, we want you to be our pastor. Would you be our pastor? And I said, no. They said, why? I said, I'm 23. I don't know anything about doing that. I know how to preach and that's it. They said, okay, fair enough. Would you fill the pulpit for a couple of weeks? I said, sure. I stayed a year. I became their pastor. Anyway, <laughs> the bait and switch worked anyway. But I love, look, here's what was cool about the situation. Tara and I, we loved those people. And my goodness, did they love us back. They were so kind to us. And we loved them. Six months in, though, I knew I was supposed to leave. I knew that I was not supposed to stay there. They needed more than just what I could give them. They needed a guy that could live right there with them and, and pastor them. And I knew I couldn't do that. I was in school and all this stuff. So anyway, I, I fought with the Lord for six months. Here's why I fought with the Lord on this. He eventually won, you know, because he does that. Um, I fought with him for six months. Here's why. The church was real small, about 35 people on a normal Sunday. Every now and then it'd surge up to 70 people. And I'd just think that I was crushing it, you know. And uh, it was a military town, though, so there was a normal rhythm to everybody's attendance and, you know, <laughs> had nothing to do with me. But anyway, of the 35, that was about four or five big core families. And we had the strongest relationship with those people. They loved us. We loved them. So much so that they would say, those families, the, the, the mom or the dad would say to us pretty regularly, man, we love your preaching. I said, wow, thank you. Thank you. In fact, we, that's the only reason we're here. We hate the music. We don't like the facilities. We don't like Deacon so-and-so at all. But we love your preaching. And if you weren't here, we'd leave. And so in my mind, just doing basic mathematics, right? I'm thinking to myself, well, if I leave, those people leave. And that is the core of the church. Translation, if I leave, this church ceases to exist. So I wrestled for six months on this. God wins. The night I left, I remember we, I cried a lot. She cried a good bit too. And I was just torn up. And as we were pulling out of the parking lot, I said to her, I was like, that church will be closed in three months. And then I fast forwarded a year and a half. They're running like 175 on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and I learned the lesson, Mr. Superiority Complex. This is not my church. And it doesn't depend on me. Amen. Right? Hey, look. This is the point of all this. Inferiority and superiority. All of us are essential to the kingdom. And we all have an essential function to play. I want to challenge you today to give what you have to give to the Lord in your talent, your time, your ability, your resources as an act of worship to Him. And if you'll do that, you know what? God will take care of all the rest of it. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Right? So number one, all of us fit within the body of Christ. Number two, all of us have an essential function. Hey, there's one other point, number three, I want to make here. It's in verse number 25. And this one, look, this is a little bit toe-stepping. I'm not trying to be. But verse 25, the third point here. All of us have to protect the body of Christ. So all of us fit in the body of Christ. All of us are essential to the body of Christ. And now watch this. All of us have to protect the body of Christ. Verse 24, 
the more presentable parts don't require this. In other words, your eyes don't require this modesty. He's just made this point that some of your body parts you need to cover up. I don't know why he felt the need to go there. You know what he was talking about there. He's just staying within the metaphors, all he's doing there. That's what he's getting at. And we get to verse number 25 and basically says, and this is done so that, here it is, there may be no division in the body. But that each members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honored, all rejoice together. You hear what he said? That there should be no division in the body. Look, I've learned this over 20, almost 28 years now being a Christian. And I've been in ministry that whole time. Uh, I've pastored. I've been an associate pastor. I've been a youth pastor. I've been a professor. I've been an elder. I've been, uh, you know, a all sorts of things in God's kingdom. The only one thing in the body of Christ I haven't ever done a whole lot of is nursery work and ushering. I got asked to be an usher one time, and I got so nervous. I was like, I'm going to mess this up. But um, I've been around a little bit. Here's what I've seen. There is a tendency amongst the divisive to, number one, not see their divisiveness as a sin. And that number two, here's what's worse about it. There's a tendency amongst the divisive to actually think they're doing God a favor. Their job is to make sure that the bad stuff doesn't happen. And they'll stir the pot, and they'll sow discord, and they will bring upheaval to a church. church that I pastored for eight and a half years, one man had run off the last six pastors. He saw himself as the keeper of the church, the protector and the guardian of the church. And there's one of those people in almost every single church. There's normally a little group of people that run with them or enable them. Now, look, I'm not trying to step on toes or anything else like this, but let me just confront those two tendencies of either one not seeing this as a sin or worse Seeing it as if you think you're doing God a favor. Look, the Bible says a lot. In the New Testament especially, the Bible says a lot about unity in the body of Christ. Did you know that when Jesus Christ is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's teaching in John chapter 17 as he's praying there in agony, did you know that one of the things, what he's praying for, he's actually praying for the church. I'll just pause this. I've learned, I've been around death a bit as a pastor. You know what I've found? People will talk and goof off and make light of illness at the beginning of their illness. But when their illness progresses and reaches a point of no return and it becomes obvious that they're not going to make it, you know what I've learned in that moment? People stop talking about trivial things. They start talking about those things that are the nearest and the dearest to their heart. They talk about their children, their grandchildren, their spouse, their loved one. They talk about their church. They talk about, they don't want to play the games anymore. In other words, when people are close to death, they talk about what matters most. Jesus, the night before he dies, knowing he's about to die, you know what's on his heart? You know what's on his mind? It's the church. And you know what he's praying for in the church? He's praying for unity in the church. How in the world these divisive people in the body of Christ can somehow think this is not a sin and that they're doing God a favor? Get over themselves. Divisiveness is satanic. 
Listen, if you want to see the proof of that, go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This is the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. You know, Paul juxtaposes those two. Fruit of the Spirit. This is what will come out of you. It will just ooze out of you if the Spirit of God is in here. And the works of the flesh. This is what will ooze out of you if the Spirit of God is not. You know, fruit of the Spirit is things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, gentleness, self, uh, self-control, and the like. Works of the flesh, a big, long list. Go read it this afternoon, please, I beg you. Of all the list of things that Paul mentions, he breaks it. There's really three big categories. There's sexual immorality. A lots of different ways he describes that. There's heresies. And watch this. Divisiveness. Did you know in that passage, God puts divisiveness in the body in the same category as witchcraft. I tell churches, look, you may as well be going and playing with Ouija boards. You're going to be that actor and agent in the body of Christ. You are doing something that God has very clearly himself said, that is the work of the flesh. And he makes it very clear in that passage, that's from the devil. We cannot operate on this idea that divisiveness is not a sin. And we certainly can't operate on this idea that divisiveness is doing God a favor. Listen, what Paul says here is that we collectively have to protect the unity in the body. He says that there should be no divisions. Now, I'm not saying we can't handle and we, or we don't have to handle issues. There are going to be issues. We've got to work through them. But we do it in a way that is not divisive. We do it in a way that protects the unity and the well-being of the church. So let me ask you this question again. What's your part and what's your place in the body of Christ? Are you a mere shower-upper? Are you paralyzed by what you're not? Are you real proud of what you are? God envisions a church where we all, no matter where we've been and what we've done, we've all come through the same blood, the same spirit. When there's a unity there in that, we all roll up our sleeves and offer to God what He has given to us to offer. And we all protect this sacred family. Lord, bless us, I pray. Thank you for 92 years of life at Myrtle Grove. It's a sign of your favor and your blessing, and we pray that you would keep that blessing and favor upon them. We ask that you would speak and work through us now and help folks to respond as they need. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake, amen. As the band comes up, and get settled just by way of invitation today. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we are thrilled to have you here with us in this church today. And I just want to explain real quick what it means to be a Christian or how to become a Christian. The Bible says I have a problem and you have a problem. That problem's called sin. I've done things, I've said things, I've thought things, I've wanted things I shouldn't. And that sin separates me from God who is righteous and holy. The bad news is, is if you die that way, that separation will go on forever and ever and ever. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. What that means is God sent His Son Jesus to come in the world and die on a cross like this, taking your punishment and giving you eternal life. If you'll turn from your sins... And throw yourself on Jesus Christ. He will save you. If you're here today and you've never done that, you can respond during this invitation. Come up and pray with Pastor Josh. You can talk to him afterwards. 
But don't leave here if you don't know Christ. Come meet Him today. Maybe there's something else going on in your heart or mind that you need to respond in obedience to the Lord. You come, the altar's open, Pastor Josh will be here, and you can pray with them there. But whatever it is, let's be obedient to the Lord today. Thank you.